Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in a Bible to the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to be reading, beginning in chapter 11, verse 45, and we'll go through chapter 12, verse 11. So John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, seen that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day 
of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. All right. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We do believe that it is living and active. As it says, we pray by your kindness, your mercy, your grace towards us, you would make the book. You'd make your word to live and to act in us now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So how often this week have you thought about, say, political power? Political power that's maybe behind our government. How often this week have you thought about maybe the alluring power of the culture, the society that surrounds us? How often this week have you thought about maybe the power of the almighty dollar? Or as the season is upon us, how about the power of university athletics? Or the power of fall and the press of holidays? I don't know if you know, but like Christmas is it's coming. Right? My favorite time of the year. How often this week have you thought on and felt the power of sin and temptation. Think, just think, how, how dominating, how determinative have such things been this week in the way that you have spent your days? Now, do the resurrection power of Jesus. How often this week have you thought about, hoped in, felt, lived by the power of the resurrected Lord? This reality that's at the very center of redemption, that's meant to consume our horizons and guide every moment of our days. Has it crossed our minds even once this past week? And if not, I mean, what a shame that we as Christians could ever live as if it never really happened. As if Christ is not raised as if Christ cannot raise, as if our bodies won't one day be raised from the dead, as if He's not already raised our souls from the dead, as if what we find in John 11 moving into John 12 is fictional instead of, as they are, factual. So why would we ever live like that? I'll tell you, the culture of death in which we live could use more Christians and churches and cultures teeming with resurrection reality. Those who live according to the power of Jesus to raise the dead. And what I want us to see this morning is that there really is no neutrality about that. Jesus raises the dead, He raises Lazarus, and we either are going to dismiss that, or we're going to live by that. 
But there is the reality, and then there is a response to that reality, and we want to make sure that our response to that reality is a right one, a biblical one. So, let's look first at verses 45 to 57 and try to frame the impending death of life, by which I mean Jesus, life, Jesus, who's just proven to be the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus from the dead. And our passage begins by dealing with two totally opposite responses to it. Some who had seen it, verse 45, it says, believed in Jesus. While others who had also seen it remained, it says, in their unbelief. And then they went in verse 46, almost unbelievably, right, to rat him out, to tattle on him, to tell on him to the Pharisees. And so we have these two distinct responses to the resurrection power of Jesus. But in them, but in those two distinct responses, what John wants us to realize is that no one denied that Jesus had done these things. Okay? Even where some failed to believe in the doer, they made no effort to deny the deed. They couldn't. They'd never seen anything like it. So even his opponents were left with no other explanation in their report to the Pharisees than that Jesus had actually raised a man from the dead. And that is the first bit of framing that John does for us when it comes to the death of Jesus. Friends, I want us to hear that Jesus did not die because he was an imposter or a fraud. Jesus died because he was the real deal. Jesus died because He really did perform signs and wonders attributed by Scripture to the coming Messiah. Or I'll say it like this. Jesus was executed, not, as He was charged, because He was an imposter to God's Word, but because He was an imposter to the religion of Israel that grew up around the Word like a weed. Jesus died because He really went about fulfilling Scripture instead of fitting their self-glorifying suppositions and schemes. So we see all of this in verses 47 and 48 and onward. How again, upon the testimony of eyewitnesses verifying the resurrection power of Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather up the council, the word here is Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, and the meeting did not begin with doubtful banter about the fraudulence of Jesus. No. When they hear about Lazarus and band together, the clear assumption is that it's true. <laughs> he really did it. Now why is that? Well, from the text, my guess is because it was all rather on the regular with Jesus. His raising Lazarus had been preceded, think now, by such a sea of wonders that even they were left without a doubt that he had done this thing. So, if you look at verse 47, their anxieties are rooted in an admittance. Okay? They say, this man really does perform many signs. See that? And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So Jesus died because He did do all these things. He died because He is the resurrection and the life. 
He died because he really is the Christ of God. And just as I hope that that will be a a tremendous consolation for us, I hope that any unbelieving friend that may be in attendance this morning will find a grave challenge there. Really important. Even the enemies of Jesus knew it was a waste of time to try and deny the things that he had done. Again, Jesus died because as the height of many wonders, he really raised a man from the dead. And friend, your integrity as a thinking soul, a human being, needs to at least reckon with that. And we can pray that as you do, you'll avoid the conclusion of those in our text. Especially these here at first. Isn't it strange? Isn't it strange to hear that Jesus is doing all these signs and Jesus is doing all these wonders and folks are are streaming to Him from the right and from the left and all over the place and believing in Him and they move to arrest Him and then execute Him for it. Isn't that weird? Beloved, listen. That which is all our hope and prayer People will be believing in, everyone will believe in Jesus. That which is our hope and prayer is the unbeliever's fear and concern. Which provides us with further framing for the death of life. Briefly put, as they put it in verse 48, the religious leaders believe that if the people continue to flock with faith to Jesus, it will draw both the eyes and then the ire of their Roman overlords. An insurrection begun in the name of one they deem a false Christ will incite the wrath of Caesar. And in return, Israel will be destroyed. They'll lose their land, they say. They'll lose not only the land, but also the nation. And so God's people at long last will be destroyed. They'll be a thing of the past. Okay, So that's the, the political answer there in the passage. Which still, to me, I'm like, if you're going to try and break free from this great military power like the Romans, why not, why not hitch your wagon to a man who's proven he can see the future, he can create wine out of water, he can heal the injured, he can give food in the desert, he can walk on water, he can restore sight, he can raise people from the dead. I mean, to me, that seems like the makings of an invincible army if that guy is the captain. But what do I know? Well, I know this. Their issue isn't just political. It's personal. Honestly, they they, they really don't mind the Roman oversight that fills their coffers and supports their little island of power. Uh, nor apparently do they really care for the people committed to their ministry. When we boil it down, their anxiety is over losing that little island of power. It's over pride of place. If you look carefully at what's said, especially in verse 50 by Caiaphas, when he says, y'all don't understand that it is better for you That one man should die for the people 
The truth is more like this, that this band of men have come to believe that they are the hope and consolation of Israel. They have come to stake their, their identity and their worth to the unbiblical notion that they are the backbone of the nation. And with that has come the settled conviction that if God's people are going to survive in the end, they are, above all others, irreplaceable. And Jesus is a direct threat to that deathly lie in their souls. You see, if the people are streaming to Jesus, who are they leaving? They're leaving them. Or at least they're losing the control and the influence and the power and the glory that over time they had come to idolize. And beloved Jesus, listen, Jesus continues to challenge that idol amongst God's people today, as He always will. Only our call, and I pray our heart, is to actually love that challenge. <laughs> Thank God for it, and then labor for it. Power can corrupt, one said, and absolute power can corrupt. Absolutely, unless, as with Jesus alone, Absolute power is held incorruptibly and with perfect humility. He is Christ and King of God's people. And it should be all our aim and all our joy then to mediate His rule in this church and then out into the world, which will always involve us in putting our pride and our preferences and our power struggles to death in favor of His preeminence and His purpose and His peace. I wonder, how might that speak to us today? Well, what I can tell you for certain is that these unbelievers do not like that word. In fact, they hate it. They despise it. And they despise it so much that they propose to remove Jesus completely from the face of the earth. What do we do with this man who's raised the dead? We're not going to believe in him. So, <laughs> how can we stifle his mounting momentum? Enter Caiaphas. We've got to kill him. That'll stifle him. That'll save our cause, our land, our nation. Oh man. Blind unbelief is blind. How it is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. Praise God then, he's his own interpreter as the song goes, and he will make it plain. The death of Jesus, we know this, right? The death of Jesus will hardly stifle him. Or save the nation as they are thinking of it. In fact, within a week, from where we are right now in John's Gospel, within a week, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Christianity is going to be born, and only a few decades later, Rome is still going to destroy Jerusalem. 
the nation as they thought of it. Just as Jesus, by the way, had prophesied. Now, the irony in all this is quite thick. As John records it, when Caiaphas spoke about the death of Jesus, God himself took it up and gave it his own proper meaning. So, through the real hate speech of this unbelieving high priest came the better word of God clarified by time about the death of Jesus. Jesus died because he really did these things. Jesus died because unbelief and unbelievers would rather kill him than serve at his feet. But Jesus also died because the redemptive plan and purpose of God ordained it for our salvation. It was Isaiah 53 verse 10, the will of the Lord to crush him so that we might be spared precisely that. Dear ones, here, John ties together the front of his gospel to the very moment that leads us into the week of Christ's passion. Do you remember the cry of John the Baptist at the beginning? Behold, in seeing Jesus, I've seen and declare to you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And do you remember the marker John gave? Here's the one with the Spirit, the one upon whom the Spirit abides. That's the one who will prove to be Messiah. And here we are. Jesus has proven it over 11 chapters. We're brought back to where He started. Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's the teaching here. Jesus will die for the nation and more. He'll die for all the children of God, wherever they are and whenever they be. Jesus will die for His people. His death was a self-insertion as substitute for us. Not to save us from Rome, but to save us from us. To save us from our sins. To save us from the just wrath of God. And not only that, but to reconcile us to God and in the context of the church, to reconcile you and me to one another. Jesus died to make a new people who are supernaturally united by and around the blood that He shed on His cross. So there really ought to be, really ought not to be, any reason we can't get along or grow together so long as we grasp the death of Jesus and the death of Jesus takes hold of us. Beloved, listen, Jesus died, or as Paul says in Acts 20, 28, God shed His own blood to obtain what we call the church. Jesus died because He is Savior and Sovereign of God's true people. Is this how we've understood the cross? Not as a disqualifier of Jesus. Not as a, a keepsake or a memento to put around our neckline. 
not as one of many symbols of God's love, not as a model for mankind of mere self-sacrifice, but as an historical fact, as the single gathering point for all God's people, as the ongoing, as Paul will say in one of his letters, the ongoing wisdom and power of God for all who are being saved. Because that's how John frames the death of life. And the rest of verses 53 to 57 serve as a bridge from that to delighting in the life that would die for us. John tells us how they plan to unwittingly serve the purpose of God in seeking the arrest and the death of Jesus and how knowing it with Passover and Passion Week on the horizon, the Lamb of God slows His pace and He settles in for a bit with His disciples. Right, This is going to be uh, the most critical week upcoming for them as well as it will be for Jesus. In fact, it seems by what follows that what John is really trying to do here is describe for us the main activity of a true disciple. Of someone who has really and truly benefited by the death of Jesus. So, if I can start us in verse 55. You see the people gathering in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, notably to, to purify themselves prior to Passover. It's an amazing thing, right? Again, they're coming to Jerusalem, Passover, we need to purify ourselves, and yet what is their entire obsession? It's not commemorating that mercy from Exodus. It's on seizing Jesus. Friends, listen. It is entirely possible to be devoted to the shadows of Christ rather than the substance It is entirely possible to be devoted to religious festivities even in the hope of Messiah only to despise Jesus in your heart. It is entirely possible to put on a show of purification, to dress up our persons, to appear solemn and holy and ready for worship and still to be at murderous odds with the Word of God made flesh. It is entirely possible for you and I to gather and miss the biblical point entirely. How have you come this morning? What have you readied more? Your hair or your heart? Your midday meal? Or your needy minds. Whether you're spiritually well or spiritually ill. Have you come to have Jesus lay hold of you? To have His gospel console you? To have His resurrection power really do something in your life? Listen, if I may add another reason real quickly. Jesus died to make traitors to His crown delighters. Delighters. Even in His cross. Delighters. In Him, 
even to death. That's why He died. Is that you? Is that me? Are we that? John brings us to Mary. Really, He brings us to this devoted family. It's the start of our Lord's last week and that takes Him to Bethany and there, chapter 12, verse 2, to a dinner with Lazarus and Martha and Mary and His disciples and everyone does what they're known for. Right? Martha serves. Lazarus lives. <laughs> Let's not be unamazed by that. And Mary adores. And in verse 3, John focuses our eyes on Mary. Always the model disciple, Mary again models true adoration, true devotion, true delight in Jesus. It seems she sees the meeting here, the dinner here, as a providential opportunity to quite literally pour out her valuation of Jesus. She takes the near equivalent of a year's worth of wages. Just think about that. You have a job. Okay. A year's worth of your wages of pure nard ointment and anoints, not his head, but his feet. And then she wipes his feet, not with a cloth, but with her hair, which would normally have been tied up. And so in this act, we're met by several things that Jesus is about to commend. I think I agree with some who say it seems Mary's perhaps pierced more deeply into the meaning of the moment than anyone other than Jesus himself. That she has a sense of his impending trials and wants to express her faith and her hope and her love, notwithstanding the things that are about to come upon him. But regardless, she, she certainly wants to identify with Jesus, listen now, as his most grateful and unworthy servant. Is that where we are? His most grateful and unworthy servant. As glory will bear out, no gift, no service is too great to commit to His glory, to His fame. We spend anything on Him that costs us, right? That's never going to be a waste. Listen, He's forgiven her sins. He's welcomed her in to the family of God. He's changed her life. Not only has He changed her life, He's altered her eternity. <laughs> just think about that. He's altered her eternity. And He's just brought her brother back from the dead. He's sitting there at dinner. Jesus is worthy. And Mary wants everyone in the house to know it. So again, there is uncommon activity here. You think how John the Baptist said he was not worthy, right? You're not worthy to untie even the strap of Jesus' sandal. It's a crazy thing to say about someone who looked just like a man because he was one. Perhaps more, as he is. Think how the disciples, just like one chapter over, are going to repulse at Jesus washing their feet. And think then now how Mary anoints 
his feet. The head was customary, but the feet, that's honestly unbecoming of anyone who wasn't of the lowest class of humanity. And to add to the shock, again, she's let her hair down. Uh, Only uncouth women in that day let their hair down. And Mary has done that here in order to wipe the feet of her Lord and Savior. The whole scene, as I thought about it this week, the whole scene reminded me of 2 Samuel chapter 6, where upon the return of the ark to Jerusalem, Michael, David's wife, chastises David for the manner of his worship, how his joy in the Lord was a little too free from the opinions of men and probably kingly status, you know. But how David then told her, dear wife, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, however abased in your eyes. His worship, however pure and uh, and becoming of God, was an embarrassment to her. And I'm sure that's something of the feeling here. The display of Mary's delight in Jesus could very well be considered a public embarrassment. But Mary could not care less. She only cares that Jesus receive the glory due His name from the bottom of her heart. Here is pure delight. Here is unmixed devotion to the life that was soon to die for her. Is our worship of God in Christ free like this? Free, that is, not from biblical indicatives and biblical directives that give it life and good order, but free from the quenching gasps of people who are too high and too cool and too dignified and too calloused to grace and truth to just fall down at Jesus' feet like this. Is our delight in Jesus merely a private matter or is it something that we just want it to go public with a design to magnify Him before the eyes of all? I don't care what they think. Again, if not this passage, you can be sure glory will reveal our worship of Christ not to have been too much, but too little. However right and true it was. And we can grant the difference between sight and faith there without negating the point intended. And the point is this, that I'm sure that you and I can delight in Jesus more and better than we presently do. No doubt, as we do, as we love to live at His feet, as we spread the aroma of His worth all over the place, Lord, let it fill the house even now. When we do that, we will be challenged. We will be challenged, even by those who are known as disciples of Jesus. And so verse 4, Judas Judas interrupts the worship-filled house 
like Michael, he's offended by an act of worship that rightly extols the worth of God's Christ because his delight is in something other than Jesus. And so Judas becomes a cautionary tale. Like those who had come for purification prior to Passover, only to pass judgment on the point of it all, Judas hides well, he hides well the true condition of his heart. And to be fair, to be fair, my guess is he's fairly oblivious to it himself. I think that's charitable towards him. He's probably oblivious. He does all the things disciples do. He follows Jesus. He dines with Jesus. He preaches Jesus. He's one of those that Jesus sent out to preach the kingdom all over the place. He's even the CFO of the Lord's ministry. He is the chief financial officer. And he leads their way in doing good to the poor. Oh, doesn't Judas seem to bear the heart of God? I'm sure some probably said. And yet, here, he scolds Mary's devotion to Jesus. He calls it a waste. And there are two issues presented us. One, the idea that our relief of the poor is more central to Christianity than our personal delight in Jesus. And two, that we can make use of worthy causes to hide our own sad conditions. Why, verse 5, wasn't this used for the poor? But, John adds, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He slavishly cared only, ultimately, about lining his pockets. Ultimately, Judas was devoted not to Jesus, but to using Jesus for his own ends. His delight was in, said at the beginning, his delight, all his thoughts, even though he's just been party to Jesus raising a man from the dead. That's not in his thinking. It's all on that almighty dollar. Think about that. It becomes more manifest as we go along and he betrays Jesus to the cross for a mere 30 pieces of silver. So as Paul would say, beloved, listen, we need to regularly examine ourselves just to be assured that Christ really is in us. That we're more like Mary and God willing, far different from Judas. Sadly, Judas did not see in Jesus what Mary saw. But dear ones, listen. True piety and biblical Christianity, without dismissing good causes in the least, will yet, at root, always value Christ and the heart's delight in Christ above everything else. That is priority number one. 
And so we see what Jesus says in verses 7 to 8. He says, Judas and any other offended party in the room, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In other words, the moment is a vital keepsake and a testimony. Jesus is about to die and depart. But far from that being a blow to their morale, they need to take Mary's delight to heart. Even after He dies and departs, He will still be worthy of all their delight. That's what's happening here. He'll be worthy of their hearts. He'll be worthy of their service. He'll be worthy of their worship. He'll be worthy of the shame. He'll be worthy even of their lives. Jesus is the Christ. And that's before we add the fact that He's going to rise from the dead. It would be utter folly to worship a dead person. Talk about a waste. But to live at the feet of one who's put even death under his feet, now you have Christianity. Let me say that again. To live at the feet of one who's put even death under his feet, now you have Christianity. Now you have one to live for, and more than that, you have one to die for. It is, as John Piper says, a dangerous duty to delight in Jesus. A few of us were at Together for the Gospel uh, this past April, I believe it was, and Piper was there, and he reiterated that it is our duty, our duty as Christians to be as delighted as we can possibly be in Jesus. I think that's right. But that, in our pursuit of joy, in our pursuit of delight in Jesus, some of us are going to die for that. Some are going to be martyred because they're so delighted in Jesus. And so we close with Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead. Mary delighted in Jesus at great cost, Judas challenged that delight. Jesus commended that delight. And now Lazarus says, oh yeah, hold my ointment. Okay? Because of his delight in Jesus, his very life, by the way, the one that Jesus had just returned to him, it's going to be imperiled. So it says in verses 9 and 10 and 11 that the Jews crowded Bethany, yes, because of Jesus, but also to see this man that Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus. Because you see, Lazarus was a problem. Lazarus was a big problem. For one thing, most of the priests in that day, like Caiaphas, were Sadducees. I don't know if you know anything about Sadducees, but Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Oops. Lazarus was a resurrected man. He was a problem. But then doubly embarrassing for them was that Jesus, 
was the one who had raised him up. And it was because of Lazarus then that many were leaving them to believe in Jesus. And so not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, he just had to go. The resurrected man had to die with the one who raised him. God forbid that people believe in the resurrection and the life. God forbid people believe in Jesus. God forbid dead souls come alive to God. If I may, are you and I, are we at all, quote unquote, imperiled as much as we can be here because we are so magnetic for Jesus? We've got a target on our backs. We're so dead set on seeing souls receive life in Christ. Are we a threat to blind unbelief? Are we a threat to the rule of darkness? Is our delight such that the adversary has to worry about us? Or is the adversary able to just sit back and just go, false alarm. That's just Brian. <laughs> Uh, nothing about him draws others away from us to Jesus. You can sit back down. You say, well, Brian, maybe if I'd been raised from the dead, I'd be more like Lazarus for Jesus. But beloved, but beloved, have you not been raised from the dead? Are you not a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you not be raised bodily at the last also? So that we should be courageously risky in living for Christ's glory. How often this week have you thought about, hoped in, felt, lived by the power of the risen Jesus to raise the dead? What is the measure of our delight in Him? You think Lazarus thought on anything else? How do you think Lazarus met their threats? Oh, we're going to kill you. I've already been raised from the dead, guys. I imagine that Lazarus met those threats with an enduring resolve to delight in Jesus as much as as he could, whatever the final cost would be. Friend, I don't know what you think about all this, but I know what you should think about all this. And it's that Jesus really did it all. And that he died because he really did it all. And in so dying, that He's open to sinners like you and me, the only door there is back into a relationship with God. Don't be, as some of these Jewish folks were, some of these priests were, as Caiaphas was, as Judas was, don't be so close to salvation and yet remain so close off to the Savior. Turn from your sins. Believe. That's what John's after. That's what we want for you, is to believe in Jesus. And Jesus will absolutely save you from your sins. 
And our hope and prayer right now is that you will discover that instantaneously. But now, beloved, again, are we living? Are we living as if Christ were dead? Or as if being alive as he is, he's all our delight. He who died for us is the resurrection and the life. How will we respond today? How will we respond today? Will we spend our lives for Him? Well, He alone is worthy of it. Let's pray. Lord, we do love You. We thank You for Your great love for us. We ask now that You would work in our hearts even beyond this moment together. Work in our hearts throughout the day, throughout the course of this week, throughout the course of our lives. Let the resurrection power of our risen Lord transform us and help us to become true delighters in you. Even no matter what it costs us. Perhaps even our lives. But Lord, convince our hearts that you are worthy. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.